Hej. Hej, <laughs> Dan. Doing good. How are you doing? Very good. Very good. Well, uh, do you like to talk first about leadership, or would you like to start off with uh, with questions? Yeah, I'll, I'll start off if you want. That's no problem. Perfect. Um, first of all, thank you very much for for having me here. So it's a huge honour, a privilege to have been invited to uh, such a place that um, a kid on his state, a council estate, could never imagine uh, being being invited to. Um, where do you start? To be honest, the last since I was asked to come, I've kind of uh, I've been up at various times of the night, worrying, um, very nervous, thinking like, what can I speak to? What can I speak to you guys about? What can I? What bits of information can I give you guys? And I was thinking, nothing was coming to me. Um, I'm from an estate, young guy, done done fairly well in in the profession that I took up. Um, what can what can we, what, what, where can we go? And uh, it just came to me one yeah, about two days ago, and I just thought <coughs> the only bit of common ground that we've we've got with each other is is being the elite. So now I can walk in there and confidence. I had a little bounce on the way in, a little swagger, because um, <laughs> I felt comfortable. Because we are the elite. I was the elite in my in my profession. You guys are the elite um, at, at the level what you're doing and where you are in education. And so for me. I always knew from a young age that I wanted to be the best. I wanted to, to, to be at the best place. Man United was the best club and I wanted to get there. And it was about setting myself targets. That's all I ever done as a kid from when I was probably 13, 14 years old was set targets. And I, all I'd done was set targets during the season. And if I attained them targets early, I'd set new ones straight away. Because I had a fear of complacency. I had a fear of failure, a fear of complacency, a fear of, of um, people saying, oh, he's, he's got to his limit. He's got to, he, he, that's as far as he's going to go. So I set the targets and then it was all about having clarity about how to get there. What am I going to do? And when I used to go into a change room, I'd really kind of pick out and find, I'd try and work out who the best trainers were, who were the, who were, who were the most efficient in what they'd done. Um, and I'd done that all my, all my, 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 through the stages of growing up and it was, it was weird. I went to Leeds United <coughs> from West Ham for um, a small amount of money um, <laughs> and then um, I became the captain within a couple of months, a big club Leeds in Yorkshire and I was in that change room, the other players looked to you as that, the captain, you, you take the ball by the horns and then I, I went to the World Cup in Japan played okay. So Alex Ferguson decided he wanted to, uh, to take me to Manchester United, which was part of a dream really, because my dream wasn't necessarily playing for Man United, my dream was to be successful, was to win. I wasn't worried about, I didn't start playing football for money, I didn't start playing football for the lavish lifestyle. All, all the stuff that we have now on social media with the access to see what these sports stars or celebrities can can amass on, on the way to being superstars. We didn't have that. I had videotapes of players and it was all about what they'd done on the pitch. And so that's, that's where my inspirations were and that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be that guy on the pitch. So um, I signed for May United and I've gone from a captain of, of Leeds United, running that dressing room, to going to Manchester United. And it's all about working out what you need to be great. 
So if I go into Manchester United dressing room from Leeds, I became a student straight away. I became a listener. I became a sponge to them other players who have won, who know how to win. I didn't know how to win. I had no trophies at that point. So I walked into that dressing room like almost more or less naked because I felt embarrassed at times. I looked around and thought, he's got more than me. Ryan Giggs has got five league medals. Oh my gosh, can't look at him. <laughs> Bex has got four. Scolzi's got three or four. Roy Keane's got four or five. Ruud van Nistelrooy is a great player, gone for 20 odd million. Seba Veron, a world superstar from, from Argentina, played at Italy in great teams. And I was looking around and just thinking, from nerves, it went to, right, how's he got there? How's he got there and how's he got there? And what am I going to do to get past them? So then it's all about sacrifice. I'm getting in before him. So Alex Ferguson, he was in the, tra in the train, training, room, uh, training ground before anyone every day. He was in there 7.30 on the dot every day. Listen, I weren't getting there at 7.30. We didn't start till 10. So that would have been, <laughs> that, that been a bit too busy. But I was getting there, one of the first two or three people in that training ground and making sure that I was going to be outworking any rival I had in my position in that team, letting the other players know I'm serious. And then once I was in there, it was about your work ethic. Also being in what you do, doing the right thing. You're not just in there, you're not just, oh, I'm here. I'm just enjoying it, enjoying the moment. A lot of players at Man United, like here, and in the, in, in the next phase of your career, you can get into the, to, to the place that you dreamed of. You can get there, it's great getting there, but how do you stay there? How do you maintain levels? How do you maintain consi consistency? That's what it's all about. It's not about getting there. The getting there is not the easy part, but the easier part. Getting to Man United. I had a good World Cup. Played okay. The manager saw me. Right, he's going to spend X amount of money to buy you. I've seen it with 10, 20, 30 players in the time I was at Man United. They turn up and they go, where I was. Right, now the fight starts. And that's how you've got to be in all walks of life. You can't just get to where you want and think you're going to be on that roller coaster and stay on there. And that's it. You've got to earn the right to stay there and believe. There were times when I was, I was kind of just sat there and thinking, wow, this is hard work at the beginning. My first year, we won the league the first year. And that's like you get to the top of the mountain and you think, wow, what an achievement that is. But then we had three years where we won nothing. And I had to believe in the manager. He said to me, listen, trust me. It's, this is a transition period. Trust me, stay, on the, stay, with, stay with it, we'll get back. And you, you need to trust a leader like that sometimes. He's earned the right to have that trust, which we did. But at the same time, after that, we continue winning. We go to um, Moscow. And this little story, it's, it's kind of about like, am, am I weird or am I a bit, a bit of a lunatic? Or I don't know, but... I think when you get to the top <clears throat> to maintain and stay, there's got to be an element of madness a little bit, but you've got to be a person that's driven completely all the time. <clears throat> you get to a certain area, you win the biggest thing, which is the Champions League. That's the big, that was the holy grail for me. How am I ever going to win this? I got knocked out in the semis, quarters, so close. We should have won this, should have won that. Never happened. I was beginning to think, is this team ever going to do it? Because Ronaldo is looking, it's in the papers, he's looking to leave. If we lose him, we ain't getting to the final again, maybe. All them questions go around in your head. We finally won it. Crazy emotions. If you could bottle that, that's it. Billionaire status is crazy. But I remember going into the, cha into the change room, celebrating, enjoying. 
get back to the banqueting hall. We've got a banqueting room in, um, in Moscow. All the families are there, all the friends are there who's traveled them journeys with you. And uh, the, the, the CEO at the time, David Gill, and the coach, Carlos Queiroz, came up to me, congratulating me. How you doing? What do you think the first thing I said to him? What do you think? Any idea? No? Knackered. That would have been one of them. It wouldn't have been said like that, but yeah, <laughs> I was, but yeah, definitely was tired. Um, but no, the first thing I said to him was, right, Mr. Gill, yep, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Who are we signing next season? Who are we getting? I need to know who we're getting before I can enjoy this party. And he looked at me and said, what the, are you, what is wrong with you? Do you know what I mean? But I only look back now, looking back and think, that's because I was so driven about next season. I needed that comfort in that room to know that, listen, these guys are serious about going on to the next level. I didn't want to win it once. I wanted to get back to the final again. We got back to the final the next two years. So three years on the spin. We won the league back to back for four years. You can't do that without having driven players in your team with desire, who make sacrifices. And I think at any, any level of any business, any sport, you've got to have a, a squad of people, a group of people knitted together like that, who are going to sacrifice for each other. And I mean, along the way, you find different, different types of leaders. I'm a type of person who would identify people throughout a change room. I'd, I would have sat there and watched people and I would be looking to work out individuals' traits how they, have, how they respond to, to being gri gripped up a bit and, <laughs> and shouted at and being aggressive with. Uh, there are players that, 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 that don't mind that. Cristiano Ronaldo used to want to be tested all the time. He used to, he used to, we used to have him in the changing because he, he could wind him up so easy because he was so intent on being the best. And like, me and a couple of the other guys used to have him on a bit of string on a regular basis in the changing room. And it, we, he was obviously the number seven, came in and wore a number seven shirt, which takes big... Um, yeah, to do that um, <laughs> at a club that Man United, and um, I remember saying to him uh, a few times, like uh, we were just winding him up with her, um, and we could, you know, he's in the earshot, so he'd be saying, "Oh, uh, Bex was like the proper number seven, wasn't he? He's like the real, he's the real deal, like the, the model and stuff like that. He was the man, and you'd see him in the corner just blowing up, going, what are you talking about? Like, whoa, whoa. He'd be going mad, but that was like." And he'd, he'd be going, that was the stimulant almost to be going out and training harder and working harder. Not just that, that's just one kind of thing. Or you'd be saying like, Beck takes the best free kicks in the world at the moment. And you, it'd be out, free kicks, free kicks, free kicks. But he was, um, but that's what I'm saying. To, to, to get to a level of, of, of in the top in any form of sport or business, I think you need that drive and determination and that will, will to win. But yeah, I, I would be a to put quite personal with cajole and, if someone is screaming out, I, I was quite willing to do that within the change room or out on the pitch. Or, listen, come on, sort yourself out. Calm, calm and collected small bits, sound bites of inf information. So they went out to the pitch really, really focused and understanding what to do because I wasn't really a, a believer. I had sometimes, especially in my younger days with England. So you go in with England as a kid and it's the pressure you think, I'm playing for England, it all kind of gets you. You don't know how to deal with pressure at the time. And you've got a manager in the change room giving you, like, on a board, ridiculous amounts of information, where to be on free kicks, corners, um, where he wants you to be on the pitch when the ball's in that position, where he wants you to be on the pitch when the ball's here. There's so much information going on to a football pitch, let alone worrying about your nerves. I used to go on there frazzled, thinking, well, so I used to think if I'm going to be captain or whatever, I'm telling people small bits of clear advice, quick, clear stuff they can go out there sometimes maybe a couple of words and that's it. Like for instance, Wayne, I used to just shake his hand every game, 
shoot on sight, shoot on sight. And then in the game, if he tried to do some little bit of mad skill and, and lost the ball, I didn't shoot, I'd be screaming behind. And I could, I'd see him, his head just going red, explode. <laughs> he'd want to just hammer me. But, um, and you, there was other types of leaders. You had Roy Keane, um, who was very volatile. And it just depended some days on the mood he was in. He could come in and you'd walk past him and be like, how you doing, what's going on? Big, at the centre of all of the jokes and stuff like that. And other days, he'd just walk past you. And in other days, he'd call a meeting and say, listen, you ain't working hard enough. There's so-and-so there, you're not working enough. What do you think you're doing? Or, for instance, on the first, one of the first days I trained at United, I've come in, the ball's come to me. I've passed the ball out to, the, to Gary Neville, the right back, who was on my team. Thought, yep, yeah, first pass to the training session, good. Quite nervous because it's my new club. 30 million pound they just spent on me, by the way. Um, <laughs> and um, I passed the ball to a teammate, carries on going, and then Roy Keane's standing there, just like going, what are you doing? Ah, screaming at me. I'm stood there going, what, the what are you talking about? I've passed the ball to Gary Neville, my teammate. That's what I'm meant to do. He went, you're not at Leeds or West Ham now. At May United, we take risks. If you want to be a winner, you take risks. But not like as calmly as that, obviously. So he, went, he was going screaming. So I, I went away for a couple of weeks. I swear, it took me a couple of weeks to digest it. I was thinking, he don't like me. He's mad, I'm going to have to have it out with him. And then it dawned on me that he was right. At the top level, it's details. In the final third, throughout the team, you've got to take risks to win the big tournaments. To be the best, you've got to take an element of risk. And then you had the likes of David Beckham as a leader in the change room. Rarely said anything but led by example on the pitch. You, uh, to get to the World Cup, he put in a performance against Greece at Old Trafford for England, was up there with one of the best individual performances I've played alongside for England, probably the best. It was phenomenal. He, he, was, he was all over the pitch. The amount of energy that he, he left out on that pitch was phenomenal. But he wasn't a talker. He wouldn't come around the training, training ground or the, to the changing rooms and, and grab you and say, listen, come on, we're going to win this game today or anything like that. It was m more about making sure he was right, and then everybody seeing his example on the training pitch or, or on the pitch itself. And then you had Fergie, <laughs> who was uh, yeah, the hairdryer's true. Um, it was quite explosive at times, and I was, I was at the end of it a few times, I had my hair dried. But he was, um, he was great at actually seeing people. He was great at actually looking at you and identifying what makes you tick, for instance, myself. I was, me and Nemanja Vidic would sit for, for hours in the steam room together. I know that sounds funny, but we would sit. <laughs> <laughs> we, would, we would sit together and just chill and just talk over stuff. And, and centre-backs, it's like, like the centre-forwards are like the pop stars. Us defenders are the ones that put the hard yards in and get no credit, right? And so we sit there and go, I can't believe that. Fergie does all these interviews and like, he's, he's boosting up Cristiano, he's boosting up Wayne and Carlos Tevez, etc. And like, like, we've kept about 15 clean sheets in the last like 20 games. What's going on? He's not even mentioned us. But we are sitting there, we're only till he left and he looked back and I realised and sp speaking to him since, he used to say, listen, if I give you, if I'd given you the kind of uh, adulation and the respect and the credit in the media, your personality was that of someone who could come in and um, kind of think that they've made it and it's done. Which was, when I look back now, was probably true. Not true, I would have still had that kind of inner personal pride to perform, but I could have maybe let things slip a little bit, thinking, nah, 
the manager respects me, knows what I'm about. I'm cool. I ain't got to work as hard in, in some training sessions and then your level <coughs> drops. So he always had me on my toes wanting to prove him uh, wrong or prove to him that I was capable and I was the best. And so that's just him identifying s something in someone's personality as a leader to make him tick. And he's done that all through the team. I mean, when I first got there, he was a lunatic. He used to kill people. Giggsy, no matter who it was, he'd hammer them. But as the time went on while I was there, I was there for 12 years, as the time went on, he became a little bit more placid. And he used to, it's, like, it's like I look at my dad with my little sisters. I've got younger sisters who are 12 and stuff. And he's so much more placid with them, but times change. And I think to myself in the change room, my dad would dig my, my, my sisters, and in the change room with Fergie, I think I would never have got away with that. But because times change and the, the environment now is different, there's a lot of foreigners, especially in change rooms now, because, and they've been brought up a different way, a different culture to us England, in England. Some of us are used over here to being shouted at and drilled, whereas over there, they're kind of brought up a little bit differently. And, he's had to, and that's a sign of a great leader in being able to adapt to different generations, to different people from different cultures. And he was, that was a, one, of his, one of his best best traits, but also since he left when David Moyes came, it was a big time for me to be able to look at different leaders and how they work and how they react in situations. And it wasn't until Sir Alex Ferguson left that you could really analyse his stuff because when you're playing under a manager like that, he is so intense that he keeps you in a bubble and you don't really look outside. So winning at Manchester United and applying yourself every day and having that work ethic to come in every day and really, really, really put yourself through it and improve every day was almost like autopilot in the end, because we had it that way. And so when David Moyes came in, you could see, you, you, you was left, left there kind of weighing it up, who's doing this better, who's doing that better. And I think delegating was one of the biggest differences and one of the biggest things that he was, he was great at, Sir Alex Ferguson, in that he allowed people to work in their area within the club that he was running. He gave them that responsibility to be able to go and run your sports science area. You go and run the sports and conditioning area. You go and run the kitchen. You go and, and at Manchester United, the commercial department is like a juggernaut. The, the training ground at, at Carrington turns into like a, a media compound for, for the day after training for about five or six hours and all the players have to go there and do all of the commercial activities with the different sponsors. He didn't have a part of that. You would never know it, but he just used to say to Mike Phelan, I don't want to know what's going on. All I want to know is when we're training and when we're not, you take care of all of that. Whereas when David Moyes came in, and I'm not sure many people would, would have done it any different, but he took all of that on. He took the responsibilities of the commercial activity. And I remember on tour, he went, this is unbelievable, the size of this. You'd never know really until you're in, that, in the walls of Man United how big it is. Then you're talking about doing all the meetings. For about the opposing opponents at the weekend, you're talking about doing the analysis, you're talking about looking at the sports science area, coaching out on the pitch, preparing the coaches, the, uh, looking at the, uh, the co coaching sessions after the videos. There's a lot to do. And for a manager to do all that, that was, I thought, one of David Moyes' biggest uh, problems and, and problem mistakes. And I'm sure he would probably be the first person to hold his hand up to that. And I don't blame him for it because it's difficult coming into a, a, a huge place like Manchester United to deal with that. But that's where I saw the strength in Sir Alex Ferguson in, in de delegating and making sure that people <coughs> were given responsibility and the confidence to go ahead and, and do stuff, make mistakes, but learn, but still have the same mentality of going forward and direction to win because everything was built um, around, around success.
So um, I think I've spoken for a long time. Um, again, I really would really like to say thank you very much for, for having me. If you've got any more questions, you wanted to elaborate on and, and any things that you've seen over the years, hit me. Well, thank you very much, Rio. So I'll start off with a few questions. And then Thank you very much. Um, I'll start off with a few and then we'll throw it open to the audience to carry on. Can I just um, take my coat off, please? I'm yeah, baking, please do. seriously. I've never been this nervous in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I swear. I've played in stadiums with lots of people, but this has killed it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you mentioned a few times your transfer from Leeds to Manchester United, mm -hmm. which at the time made you the most expensive defender um, in the world. Mm -hmm. I believe it was 34 million, including add-ons? From Leeds to Man United, yeah, something like that. So with the add-ons, it would have gone up because we won a lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess my first question is, um, were you worth that much? Yeah. Um, no, listen, it's relative. I think... We all know and understand that in football there's so much money nowadays, it's a billion dollar industry and the players who are part of that entertainment are going to get paid handsomely for it. The clubs earn a lot of money, therefore the, the, the players are going to earn a lot of money and we, we understand that as players. We enjoy it, obviously, but it's, um, it is just part and parcel of that industry that you're in. Mm. Very fortunate that we chose that, fortunate, uh, that industry to play in. Um, but yeah, who, you can't say who... Is he worth that amount of money? In the going rate in, 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 in football, yeah, I was more than worth it, I'd say. I mean, as a Man City fan, I know more than enough about how much money has yeah, how's that? I don't know how I've actually ended up here with <laughs> that, because I can't get out of a car and come into Oxford University like that and there's a Man City fan greeting me. I don't, you, <laughs> you almost went in the boot. <clears throat> um, but do you think it's a, a shame how much influence money does have in the modern game? Do you think there should be any sort of limits or controls on the amount of money clubs can spend? Um, yeah, I think if you look at the world today, the, the amount of money that's going through football is, is crazy. But at the same time, the football clubs, like I said, are, are, are earning crazy money. The Premier League rights for the TV rights have just gone for over more or less a billion pounds. And it's just, it's phenomenal, really. But I think we'd all sit here and say, listen, firemen, policemen, nurses, etc., much more worthy of earning that type of money. But uh, as, again, you, you can't get away from the fact that this is an industry that just pays great money. But having a cap on it, yeah, I think young, especially the young generation, the young kids that come through at football clubs. When I came through and signed my first uh, YTS deal, which is now they call it a scholar, I was on £29 a week plus expenses, and them expenses went a long way. But it was... It wasn't until probably I was two years after that when I should have made me 19 years old where I started earning into the thousands a week. Um, but nowadays, a 16, 17-year-old is into the thousands before they've even kicked the ball for the first team. And you see kids at Chelsea. There's kids at Chelsea that have not played more than two or three games, some not even played in the first team. They're on 25 grand a week. But how do you actually have a kid who's on 25 grand a week at 17 years old how do you actually get that kid to get out there every day and training and try and improve and try and better himself? He's a millionaire more or less already. He's set his, him and his family up. He needs to have that drive and determination. Some kids just haven't got it in them and if you give it to them too early, they're never going to have it. So there needs to be an element of still reaching to, to, to get to that area, the end of the rainbow type thing because I just think that kids nowadays, there's too much too soon. Again, they're in cotton wool. It's a different environment they're brought up in but 
the hard, the, the, the hard not, I'm not saying I had a hard life growing up in a football club, but there was a lot more um, men in them training grounds who were allowed to run a dressing room. Whereas now, at Man United, for instance, if I said to a kid, listen, go and get my boots. They're in the boot room, I need my boots, please. They'd look me up and down like I was a Martian. They would, because they, pardon? I'm on 25 grand a week, mate, don't tell me what to do. That's the way these kids are, will act now. Whereas, when I was a kid, I was actually a boot boy. And I sound like an old man here, talking down to the next generation, but it's a fact, I was, uh, that was a part of my respect, that was part of my, I wanted to be out of the boot room. I didn't want to, I to Tony Cotty, West Ham, striker, he was like the, the main man at West Ham, I was his boot boy. And I remember being in the, in the training ground on one of my first days, and all I was in, I'd, I'd cleaned his boots, I'd buffed his boots up, they were shining, they was on, his, on the peg in the boot room. And the, the first team would go into the, into the boot room and actually get their boots and then go out. And I heard him screaming my name. Where's Ferdinand? Ferdinand, get out of here now, into the, into the um, lunch area. So I've, I've walked out, young 17 year old, yeah? And he went, where's my boots? Uh, I can't swear, but he said, where's my boots? Where's my training kit? Where's my tracksuit? I said, well, your boots are hanging up where all the other people's boots are. He said, no, every day from now on, I want my boots underneath my spot where I get changed. I said, no, I went, I went in, and he just started screaming again. <laughs> from that day, his boots and his training kit was under his peg. But that's respect that you have to earn, you have to get by doing things for the older players. They run that dressing room. You couldn't just walk into a change room back then. You couldn't just go into the change room and think that you can go and sit down or, or get a drink out of the first team's change room. You've got to earn the right to get in that change room. That's through performance, that's through training hard, that's through making games in the reserves and then getting in the first team and then coming in the change room and then they accept you. Now, they don't need the acceptance. Mm -hmm. They don't need it, so it's difficult. And I think in the long run, it makes it harder for them because mm -hmm. they're, not, they're not used to the bumpy roads. They're not, they don't have bumpy roads growing up as a, as a kid. They're ferried <coughs> about. There's coaches that go to each school, pick them up and take them to training. I don't understand that. I used to finish training, I'd hang around with my mates for 20 minutes, but then I knew there was a bus I had to get on. I'd just gone four o'clock, I had to get that bus, because if I didn't get that bus, I'd miss my next one, which would put me late for my next tube, and then my other tube, and then the train, and then my next two buses at the other end that I had to get, which would take me two hours if I'd done it, if I'd done it right. And I never missed them buses, but that was part of getting me ready. Efficiency, getting me ready, punctual mm. for, for first team football. And obviously, to get to the top level, you do have to start training at such a young age um, and, you know, sacrifice often academic work, sacrifice other activities. Mm. Um, do you think it's ethical to kind of hunt out and train young kids from such an early age and then pigeonhole them into a certain career where it might not end up working out? They might get injured, they might just not be picked and yeah. then they're really left without a, an option to fall yeah, back Yeah, but on. that's why I think education is a huge part of of football which they could integrate a lot more. I think um, I was lucky, my dad said to me in my last year at school, if you don't get minimum five A to C's, you ain't going football. And so I was scared, obviously. <laughs> I had to revise, I had to, do, I had to work a bit harder, but I, I was always well aware that education had to be a part of it. And listen, at the end of the day, there's kids out there that are going to say to themselves, my little boys play football now, and I know there's kids within their team that say, I don't care about school, I'm going to be a footballer. That's the hunger and desire that they've got, but it's down to the parents to educate them. So there's more, there's more to it, the injuries that they could get. 
they might not get picked. There's such a small percentage of players that actually get picked to play football. That elite we were talking about before. So you've got to prepare yourself to actually go into the next phase of your life and to be able to do something different. I mean, that's why when I was at, at Manchester United, when I hit about 26, 27 years old, and I, I was comfortable and I knew exactly what I needed to do on, during that week to be ready for a Saturday's game, i.e. my training schedule, my training regime, what I need to eat, physically being ready, mentally being ready for a game on a Saturday. That's, by that time when I realised what I needed to do at them points to get there, that was the only point I actually started thinking about things outside of football, like opening a restaurant, like my digital magazine, like the fashion brand, like my foundation. Until I got to that point, I was scared to look outside of, of football. I was scared to, <coughs> because I used to think, if people start thinking I'm doing, every, every, uh, doing loads of things off the pitch, I'm not concentrating on football, I think people will use that stick to beat me with in the media, etc. And I didn't want people to be allowed to do that. So I made sure football was right, my bread and butter. But then that's when I started to look, because I didn't want to be pigeonholed, like you said. Mm. Uh, that was my biggest fear of being pigeonholed, is just, he's a footballer. It's like the next stage of my career, I wanted to set things up so that when I did retire, like I have, I had avenues to go down and I wasn't going to be told where I was going. I'd set things up that I could actually make decisions and choices based on the foundations that I'd laid through the later stages of my career. Mm. And which of your business ventures are you most proud of? I think all in different ways. I think the, my foundation is, I've always been someone who's wanted to help and, and give back as a cliche, but it's just, it's true. I used to sit on my estate where I grew up with my mates until late at night on, on the stairs and stuff, and I'll never, I'm never leaving Peckham. As you say, stupid stuff, when you're a kid, you know, you're, gonna, you're gonna eventually move and, and, and do different things. but. I was always of the mind of being able to come back and help people and, and that's what my foundation's about, it's getting kids back onto who, who have fell out of education and stuff, <coughs> giving them qualifications to get back into work, workplaces and we've got links with different companies like BT, uh, BBC etc, that they get those work placements that after they qualify on, the, on our courses they can go into there and, and start on that ladder. But, but yeah, that f with the foundation and the digital magazine was, has been a real interesting part for me because I like that space, the digital and technology side of things. And when my, my team at New Era who look after me were saying, oh, this, it, we'll do a magazine and stuff. And I was like, yeah, I like that lifestyle. I love music, I love fashion, I love food, I love um, <coughs> sport and, and stuff like that. This package it up and it was, I just thought it's really expensive and how can I expect a, a, someone just to go out and buy that off of me? And I've never done a magazine in my life. So we decided to do a digital one online and make it free for everyone to buy, or sorry, everyone to get. So when it was free, that was a, a big incentive for me to do it. And it's been going for four and a half, five years now, and it's been voted the best lifestyle app, magazine app on, on iTunes and stuff, and won various awards. And it's been good, but the most interesting part has been the actual how to monetize it. How to have a magazine that no one pays for, but then monetizing it through advertising and stuff like that, and just seeing the, um, how the advertising world's kind of evolving from print to digital and how that dynamic works and the trust from people who had always been print a bit old school and now obviously the new new ages come in and how they kind of evolve into that and get into that and the trust element from it and obviously there's no um, experience of it so there's no history to it to look back and go oh well, that, well that's the, there's a case study there for it it's all kind of just touch and feel and work it out as we go along so it's been interesting. Mm. 
but really, really good. And off of that, we've managed to do a fashion line off of it, um, sell a load of caps, and we're doing some more clothing now. So it's been exciting. I, I enjoy it, and I enjoy doing different things. I mean, as a kid, I done ballet, so at the Central School of Ballet. Don't laugh, but um, <laughs> but but that was different. <coughs> no one would expect me to have done that, and um, I was comfortable doing that as a kid. I was always been quite a confident kid, so. I've done it really just to kind of go and meet new new girls and stuff like that <laughs> initially. <laughs> but I, had a, I did enjoy it and I've done it for about three or four years as a, a scholarship, which was really good. Mm. And you've also become a highly successful pundit uh, recently. And in light of um, John Terry's kind of beef with Robbie Savage about mm. him not being qualified to comment, mm. um, do you think that modern day pundits need to have successful careers in the game before they can then go on to join Sky or BT or whatever it may be? No, I mean, I just look at things like that from when I was a player. When I played, um, criticism is just part and parcel, especially with social media now. If, you've got, say, if you're on social media as a sportsman or someone in the public eye, you better have thick skin because you're going to get hammered. Um, because there's people from other clubs, tribalism, etc., who are going to be on your case all the time. And you've got to accept that there's going to be an element of criticism. Now, my only problem comes is when... It's personal. If it's personal, that was my whole point on getting on social media five or whatever year, six years ago when it was, is that I wanted to have a voice, a platform where I could actually show people the real me. Because it, before that, it was obviously just print media. And there was a guy behind a desk like this who wanted to have, a, he had an opinion on me and he, they were more or less shaping my image. They didn't know me. They were saying I was this guy who was always in red carpets, always in nightclubs, always doing this with diamonds everywhere, etc when 90, 95% of that wasn't me. But he was having the ability to do that, where social media gave me another <coughs> voice and to be able to show people, this is actually what I do, this is where I'm at, this is how I do things. Mm. And so that way you can shut down a lot of kind of rubbish. But at the same time, I, I understand John Terry, you get upset, you, uh, but I use that as fuel. There were times when I wanted to come out and say, listen, what are you talking about, blah, blah, blah. And if it was ever personal, I'd go up to people, a reporter, and I'd say, listen, what are you talking about? Explain yourself and have a one-to-one -one with someone. But when you do it publicly, it kind of looks like sour grapes, a bit bitter. And when you are coming to that stage of your career, there's going to be more, more, more criticism. I had that when I was at Q QPR. Uh, I had that in my last couple of years at Man United. But the only way you can shut people like that up is by winning, being successful, being consistent. And that was my way when I was at Man United my last under year under Fergie. The year before, people had written me off and said you were finished. And then we won the league the next year, and I didn't have to speak. Mm. That was my that was my voice. Mm. When will United next win the league? Um, you said that quite smugly, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> it's quite smug. Um, they've got a chance this year. I think a lot has been said about the way they play, and it's not uh, as good to watch as in previous years. But I've said many times now um, on TV, etc., that I think as a Man United fan, going to Old Trafford and watch, or watching on the TV, you have to re-educate yourself as a fan to watch Man United. You're not going to get the lung-busting, last-minute goals, the, 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 the ridiculous flair, the flamboyance that, that was once there before. It's a different type of football. It's a different philosophy. This, the team now are very pedestrian, very precise in the way they play football. So you've got to expect different things of this Man United team. If they win, I'm sure we'll all be happy. Well, I won't be, but you may be. Um, and moving on to something entirely different. Um, Sol Campbell has claimed that he wasn't made England captain um, because of his race, because he was black. 
Um, do you think that's true? Do you think there is a problem of racism in football? Um, if there is, what steps do you think we can take to try and tackle it? Um, listen, I'd be lying if I didn't think there was elements of racism within football. I think that there is. Where it is, is the, where there's the grey area where people have opinions. Um, I mean, if Sol thinks that, then that's, that's his opinion. Um, was Bex made captain at that point? I think, and if you, I mean, as I said, Bex was a global superstar. You can see the angle that the, the FA were, were going for. Um, someone who in, inspires others, inspires, inspired this last generation, really. Um, so to argue with that would be a quite a different, difficult argument. Sol Campbell, yeah, was a, would have been a, a top contender within that squad to be the captain. <coughs> but I think if someone lesser, um, with someone with less experience or um, hadn't won as much or without, without the exposure that he, would, he gave to the England squad had got it, then I think Sol's argument would have been a lot stronger. Um, but it takes me to the Rooney rule. Do you guys, are you familiar with the Rooney rule? Yeah, and, and I think it's... I was at first thinking, uh, if I was a manager, and the Rooney, Rooney rule is where they've got to give you a, an interview as a, a person of colour. So I was like, I don't want to go into an interview room just based on my colour. I want to go in there because I am the man to be in there, I'm the right man. And then it's down to me then to sell myself or sell my vision for the club f to that chairman. And I didn't want to do it based on colour and I thought that's what the Rooney rule was leaning towards. But again, and the other argument I've got when I'm sitting there thinking about it is that football, like a lot of industries, is like a mate's game. It's who you know. And at the moment, there aren't many black managers on that merry-go-round that's going around. And you, as you see in, in the, the Premier League, in the Football League, you see uh, the same managers really on that merry-go-round getting jobs. They lose one, six months later, even shorter, they get another one. And it goes on and on and on. And uh, that merry-go-round has got to be infiltrated with a few more people or sprinkled with a few more people of colour. Um, because at the moment, the chairman aren't being able to meet potential managers of colour because they're not on that merry-go-round. And so the, 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 the chairman or the people that make the decisions within these clubs don't then know what a person of colour is thinking about their football club. Can they sell me a dream? Are they the right people to articulate what I want for my club? Can they carry out my needs and what I want for my club? So they never, they never know. So because it's such a closed environment, there's no black people really or people of colour in that, in that space. That's the thing that's got to change. Mm. And the problem is, the question is really, will the Rooney rule change that? And I think if you, uh, a manager's forced to bring people of colour within that interview process, he's going to then get a better idea and understanding or, or he will see that there are people out there capable. Thank you. And we're going to open up to questions from the audience now. Can we start off with the uh, question from the gentleman in the shirt on the aisle near the back of the room? During the successful time, like the golden age of Manchester United when you were playing there, you were winning one after the other, you had a lot of strong characters in the team, a lot of big leaders. During the same time in the English team, there were big leaders. However, on the field, the intensity wasn't the same that was shown uh, by Manchester United team. What was the difference, according to you? Manager. Um, it's true. I mean, we used to speak to all the foreign players in our team, Seba, Veron, Ruud van Nistelrooy, Roy Keane, etc. And they say, you lot got the best players on paper in Europe, in the world, if maybe, at that time the golden generation we were named. 
But it doesn't matter how good your team is or how good the individuals are, if they're not put together as a collective in the right way, you, you, can't, you can't be successful. And we had, in our midfield, probably the best midfielders in the world. We had Scholes, Gerrard, <coughs> Lampard, Beckham, all centre midfielders really, Beck's on the right. But Scholes was playing left midfield. I didn't see Xavi playing left midfield for, for Spain. Do you know what I mean? You put your best players in their best positions and the most influential players play in their best position. Scholes is the best player, naturally gifted player I've played with ever. And he's being forced to play left midfield. And that's down to me from maybe managers <coughs> not being able to say to certain players who are big, big names, listen, take a seat on the bench, please, because this is going to be my team. I'm building it around the best players, the best player there for in that position, the most effective player. So, I don't know. It's, I think the manager... Listen, you can't compare England and... and, and Manchester United is a total different. Man United teams are together 24-7. England teams come together every now and again. And so it's going, to be, it's going to be different. But it's just, we weren't good enough at the end of the day as, as, as individuals, as a team. And I do think it's down to being put together in the right way. And we was never, that was never our case. Hi, Rio. Right. Uh, obviously, you've won everything there is to win in the game. Uh, so on that note, would you like to play for the Brazno Seconds against Lincoln <laughs> tomorrow afternoon at two o'clock? Did you say seconds? The set, the Brazno. Bra <laughs> Rio, it's a it's a huge local derby. That, that's the, it's a really big game. There's the answer there. When you say seconds, I can't be involved. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Good Thank luck you. anyway. Uh, can we go to the the gentleman in the the white shirt on the second row. Rio, you right, mate? Um, <laughs> You said a couple of times at the start, 2002 World Cup, you thought you were okay. I thought you were England's best player in that tournament. I was would just you being say, modest. <laughs> <laughs> or would you say you're quite a self-critical person? Is that potentially why you've helped? Yeah, I, I had that down here in my notes actually to speak about, but I didn't. But I think um, anyone who's at the top level, whether you're playing top level or you're leading the team or you're a manager, you, you criticise yourself more than anyone else. If I'm going to be able to, if I'm going to go in a change room and I'm going to dig someone out, which, was, which happened on occasions. If I'm going to dig someone out on a training pitch or in a training ground or, at the, or in the match, I need to know that my own house is in order. Am I training hard, harder than anyone else? Is my work ethic right? Is my punctuality right? Am I, am I performing? <coughs> Even if I'm not performing in the game, I can accept that if I'm not performing because it's not for the want of trying and not for the want of being professional. But if I'm going to go at someone, I need to know that, as I said, my stuff's right. So after a game, before I even speak to anyone, I've, I come off that pitch knowing what I've done right, what I've done wrong, and where I'm going to work on it. And then I can go in there with full confidence. When I dig someone out, he can't come back at me with anything. He can't come back at me if I've not tried hard enough. He can't come back to me that and I haven't prepared because I'm in a training ground before you, so be quiet. That's the way I was when I, was, when I played. Can we go to the um, gentleman in the, in the glasses about halfway back on the right-hand side? So um, earlier we spoke about um, Sol Campbell being overlooked for the captaincy, uh, the England captaincy. Did you have a few that um, at Manchester United you were overlooked for the captaincy? And do you, do you have a few you were overlooked by Sir Alex um, for the position of captain or vice-captain? Yeah, I um, think when it was my time to be captain, Gary Neville was injured. And the manager was expecting Gary to come back and it took him a year, a year and a half and he never really came back. So I was kind of sharing it with Giggsy at the time <coughs> when we were on the Champions League and stuff. And then once he was going to make a decision on the captaincy, 
I was starting to get injuries with my back. I had a few problems. Vida was obviously a bit younger. More than worthy candidate to be captain. And I think the manager's his comments at the time was, I want someone who's going to be on the pitch all the time because he'd had the <coughs> problem with Gary Neville before. And I think that kind of went against me. Disappointed? Of course. Listen, you don't want to be captain. Lifting trophies, leading your team out, the responsibility, that's the stuff I thrived on. That's what I wanted. You know, I, di I didn't play to, to, to just be one of the 11. I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be the person that people looked to. I wanted that added responsibility. But even without the armband, that was my attitude as well, to be honest with you. But the armband was something, as a kid, you look at it and you, it, it just filled you with immense pride when you wore it. And it was um, maybe an ego thing as well, if I'm being honest. But it was just a... It was almost, it just caps off everything and you just think, right, now let's go even uh, again, do you know what I mean? But it's, again, I'm not bitter, don't get me wrong. I'm not bitter at all. Um, but being Man United and England captain, wearing that armband when I did was just special stuff. Were you in Vidic the best centre-back partnership that the Premier League's ever seen? What do you think, as a City fan? <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd have to disagree, but... God, who do you think it is then? Mm, I, think, I think Vincent Company and... Uh, <laughs> and who? And who? Thank you, thank you very much. And who? Uh, well, and Mangala and Demichelis, they're, they're working on it. <laughs> I might be biased, though. I'm moving on. Um, um, can we please go to the um, question about halfway back, two in from the bookshelf? Um, I was just wondering whether you thought, given more time at Man United, David Moyes would have been able to uh, succeed. And if you don't think that, at what stage in his reign did you start to realise that maybe he wasn't a good fit for the club? Hmm. Are we filming this? <laughs> mm. <laughs> so, what was the first bit again? Sorry, um, I'm being serious. Whether you bit. think, given more time, he would have okay, been able yeah. to succeed? Um, it's difficult. How can you kind of make a judgement on that? I think the club made their decision and we, as players, you stick by it. I just think it's, it's such a big job. I think the biggest, one of the big problems as well for, for David Moyes, which I think anybody would have, would have struggled with, was he wasn't just feeling Sir Alex Ferguson's shoes. He, was, he had to fill a CEO, David Gill as well, who changed at the time. He had to fill, them, them shoes had to be filled. So you've got two huge players at the club who made the decisions and were part of a huge period of success at a club, just gone out of the club. A new manager comes in, who hadn't managed at a level, level before, and a new CEO comes in. And then that <coughs> dynamic, they got a full a relationship, as well as retain success. We won the league by, what, 11 or 12 points a year before. And that, that's, that's huge. It's a huge void to fill in a club. Um, so he made it... Poison Chalice, I don't know, not a Poison Chalice, but I think it was a difficult place to come into to be successful. And like I said, I don't think uh, that it, David Moyes realised the enormity of the job, of the place, until he was in, in, in the club, and then it's hard to turn it around. Once you're in that bubble, it's hard to really see it. We go to the question uh, right at the back next to you, Harrison. Uh, hi, Rio. If you were Manchester United manager right now and um, Ed Woodward gave you a blank cheque to sign any player, who would you sign and why? I would have to say... I was screaming last year to buy a bow. Um, the fans were on his case and I thought it was a perfect time to go and get him at, at Real Madrid. He's 24, 25 years old, prime time, peak of his powers physically. 
knows how to win now since being at, at Real Madrid. You get six years out of him now, I think <coughs> it's money well spent. Do you agree? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> uh, the gentleman in the pink shirt on the second row. Uh, will we ever see another episode of Rio's World Cup wind-ups? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't expect to hear that here. <laughs> um, maybe, yeah. Well, we've been speaking about it. Um, it's something that we've been asked to do a few times since. Uh, it was funny. Um, I did enjoy winding people up back in the day and um, I should bring it back out again. There's a good few people I'd like to get now. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's an exciting project. So um, maybe. Um, and do you want to just pass the microphone to the, to the front row? Just, just in front, yeah. Um, you've clearly been through some very difficult defeats in your time. Like you mentioned the Champions League semi-final earlier. Um, how did you get through that? And what's it like going back into the dressing room? Well, I've probably been the, the drunkest I've ever been after both them finals against Barcelona, so that's one way. Um, no, it's, it's, it's the same as winning. It's just, again, looking to get back. I remember we lost the first one. We were embarrassed, really, against <coughs> Barcelona in Rome. And I remember the manager saying in the, in the, cha in the change rooms after, listen, Look, looked like the whole change room was obviously devastated and everyone was down and just on their hunches like that and I remember the manager saying listen everyone get your heads up look at me now he said we'll be back here next year get back here and that was the, the mindset of the players we all get back there we got beat again but we will get back and I think as I said even if you put into perspective we won four titles back to back three Champions League finals within that period that are, I find it hard to see that being repeated you could, Man City they ain't won back-to-back -back titles yet. They find it too hard. They ain't got past the group stages, really, of the Champions League. And they've been the best team in this country for a couple of years. Chelsea, they finished fifth, I think, when they won the Champions League. They didn't win the league. It's a difficult thing to do. So to find a team that's capable of doing that is going to be difficult. Okay. Uh, thanks again for coming, Ray. It's a privilege to have you here. Um, were there any particular teams that you really enjoyed playing against or really enjoyed beating? I remember some really good goals you scored against Liverpool oh. that I really enjoyed. Beautiful, beautiful. Don't take me back, please. Um, um, no, listen, the rival, I didn't realise the rivalry between Man United and Liverpool until I got there. And it was like the week before the game, I'm taking my kids to school. I've got nans, granddads, kids coming up to me. Don't you lose that game on the weekend? Don't lose that. And the pressure starts mounting, you start thinking to yourself, especially the first couple of years, I was like, what? I've never known anything like it. You go into the baker's, the baker's in there with his hair nut on, screaming at you, make sure you don't lose to these boys, blues, blah, blah, blah. And it was just like, you didn't, I didn't realise the, the magnitude of how the city would just get taken over um, by, by the, the derbies um, and by the, sorry, by the Liverpool games. And then all of a sudden, Man City started with a little bit of money and a few more fans came out of the woodwork and <laughs> the, 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 the <laughs> and then so the, the city became more of a rivalry then and so you'd see you'd walk down in Manchester down the high street and you'd have people shouting at you not just about Liverpool but about Man City then and so it became really 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 enjoyable when we did win I remember Robin Van Persie's goal against Man City was just beautiful we won 4-3 um, I've got a coin to remember it 
when I was hit with a coin from one of the City fans. But um, but it was um, it was a great shot. But um, that game, the Liverpool game, the one I scored in at Old Trafford at the Stratford end, was a lovely touch. Came out the sky, <laughs> left foot into the top corner. Rainer had no chance. Um, <laughs> that one. But to be honest, yeah, some of the games I didn't score in, or we, when Shazy, John O'Shea scored at Anfield, there's no better place to win at Anfield. It's unbelievable. Last minute, he scored one last minute. I think Tevez scored another one, and we went, to, went on to win the league after Shazy's one. But it was just, ah, oh, to celebrate at Anfield and walk off and walk down a tunnel. Just, ah, oh, it's beautiful stuff. So. Can we go to the uh, question from the gentleman about halfway back on the right hand side in the blue jumper? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you, s <coughs> you spoke a lot about the influence of media in. Um, oh, sorry, so media. Sorry, yeah, I have two questions. You spoke a lot about the influence of media in sports, and we see it a lot. Um, you know, England not winning the World Cup, perhaps. Is that a bad thing? Um, and my second question is Will Ireland win tonight and qualify for France? I hope they do. Um, I want to see the home countries go to the tournament. I think they had something with the fans and stuff. and. I've got a lot of mates who play for very, uh, all the home countries, so I'd like to see that. Um, the media, was you, did you mean affecting the, the England national yeah, team winning? Yeah, because when you go to, with England, everything gets magnified hundreds of times more. Um, the whole country's eyes are on you. <coughs> and I think a job of a manager as well, of a team, is to kind of protect the players from that um, magnifying glass and for the attention. And when you go over and, and kind of take the pressure off the players, because you go there, especially when you're young, and obviously this is like the holy grail playing for England, it's what every kid dreams of. And so you go there and all that pressure from, from them years of, of wanting to play for England are on your shoulders when you get there. And you need a manager to be able to take that away and let you go out there and just play with a free kind of spirit. And I mean, that's what Ferguson was great at. It, it was all about going out there and expressing yourself and enjoying it and letting the attacking players just play. And with England, I just never felt we had that kind of freedom. It never felt free. It never felt that fluidity to, to the way we played football as individuals and as a collective. And, and so I think uh, the media as well play a huge part in that in terms of the expectations that they put upon the players' shoulders. Now, you get people that say, oh, you paid X amount of money, you should be able to deal with that. Listen, we're all human and people have to deal with emotions and managing emotions are a real big and huge part of in any walk of life being able to manage your, your emotions, especially in pressure situations. And that separates the, the good from the great. We've got time for a couple <coughs> more questions. Can we go to the uh, question right at the back? Hi, Rio. Uh, so there's a sense among the fans that towards the end of Sir Alex Ferguson's tenure, he let the problems in centre midfield linger for a little too long. What did you and some of the other senior players in the, think, think, uh, in the team think about that? In field in what, sorry? The problems in the central midfield? Yeah. About towards the end of Sir Alex Ferguson's career. What did you and some of the other senior players in the team think about that? Did you think there was enough in the midfield or did you think there was serious need for reinforcements? Um, we had Michael Carrick left. Who was else was left? Michael Carrick. Anderson. 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 Cleverly, Fletcher. You're a fan, you know your stuff. Um, yeah, but listen, so in Sir Alex Ferguson's last year, he won the league by 11 points. It couldn't have been that bad. I think that's the argument that he would have. If I was sitting in these shoes, I'd say 11 points, excuse me, with all due respect, 
I've just left you with a team that have won by 11 points. Please take that on. That's what I'll be saying. But I understand <coughs> injuries with Fletcher. Um, Skull's retired. Um, Cleverly was a young player. Anderson had a lot, lot of injuries. But then that's down to, to, to the next manager then to go and reinforce that midfield. He, he went and bought Fellaini. Um, he was a player that he chose. Juan Mata he bought. So he was reinforcing the team. But then it's all about who you buy, do they fit into your team, etc. Then the manager's got to take that on and then make it his own team. And then, um, so it's, it's, I don't think Sir Alex Ferguson can be accused of leaving the team in substandard, not when you've run the league by that amount of points. Hi, um, just want to ask a brutally honest question from you. Um, how well do you think England are going to do next summer? I hope they do a lot better than last tournament because I thought it was a, a big disappointment. Um, but the players are, are, are more experienced now. You'd like to think there'll be improvements. The problem is, is the group that they've qualified from, I don't, gives it, I don't think gives us any bearing on if there's an improvement or not. I think we saw against Spain the other day. Totally outclassed, really. Um, so when you're coming up against the Spains, the France, who are going to be at home at the tournament, the Germanys, I think we'll still be left wanting, if I'm honest. Um, and then finally, on the, uh, on the second row, please, down here. Uh, hi, Rio. You hi. said uh, Paul Scholes was the most naturally good player you played with. Um, I just wanted to know which team and which player did you least like to play against? Um, the Chelsea team, when Mourinho was first there, was a hard team to play against. Their pace in wide areas, Robin, Duff, um, Drogba, strong, powerful. Lampard hitting 20 goals a season. Um, John Terry and Cavallo at the back. McAuley in front of the back four, the best holding player in the world at the time. They were a hard team to play against, really difficult, strong, powerful team. Um, we had great games against them, really. Um, them, I'd say, obviously Barcelona. I mean, in Rome, they just had, they embarrassed. I remember me and Giggsy and Scolzi were sat, stood on the pitch. <laughs> Even at, I think it was at Wembley. No, was it Wembley or Rome? They both moved into one, actually. It was that bad. Um, I remember we was all sat, stood there watching Barcelona walk up the steps. And we all stood there and you see players now doing that, don't you? It's like talking to each other to stop the lip readers seeing what they're talking about. And we was just going, oh, how embarrassing was that? It was just, that was how it made you feel. You just felt like you shouldn't have been on the pitch. And, um, and you've got to live with that over a summer. So that's what I mean. So we won the league that year. Both of them years we lost the, league, uh, lost the Champions League final, um, which is devastating. But we won the league both years in the Premier League. So it more or less dampened the win in the league. So you're on holiday and everyone's going, oh, what a season you've had, blah, blah, blah. And you're, you're, all the first thing you can think about is, oh, we just got destroyed by Barcelona. So you can't <coughs> even enjoy it, really. It's, been, it was, it's, it's kind of a weird, a weird feeling. Mm. Uh, we've got Reid van Nistelrooy coming here next week. Rude. Um, Good guy. Good guy. What is the one question you think we should ask him? <coughs> um, why he didn't score that goal at, at Wembley, man? or the Millennium Stadium. <laughs> he was under the bar, he was more or less underneath the crossbar and he missed, I can't believe it. We lost, it was against Arsenal. I still... Um... <laughs> yeah, that, that was, yeah, just tell him, man, I, I still have nightmares over that, it kills me. Um, 
He was a brilliant player, man. He was unbelievable. He's the most devastating striker I've ever played with. Like the ball drops in the box and bang, it's a goal. Be really good, really good striker. Great guy as well, funny guy. Good guy. Um, that's all we have time for today, I'm afraid. You must have a couple more questions. I see a few people look disappointed. We've got a couple you want to save a couple more questions? Come on, let's save a couple questions. more. Okay. Um, hmm? the, yeah, I want to, uh, the question from a person. Uh, go on then, Sunday. As an ex-England player, what do you think about the, the fact that it appears that the next two venues for the World Cup have been fixed by corruption and probably two previous to that? I think as a, I don't know, why are we carried on here? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, as a player, you totally put that to one side and don't think about it because all you're worried about is getting to a tournament and taking part and then trying to win the tournament as a professional. Um, as an ex-player now, obviously, you get time to think and see these type of things that are happening. It's funny, I've just come back from Qatar and um, I went to look at one of the stadiums that's being built and I'd had a lot of stories given to me and, and I digested a lot from the media. But I went, when I went to the stadium, the level of professionalism that I saw, um, 3,000 people on site working, um, it's the safety, I, I couldn't pick a fault if I'm being totally honest in that respect. Whether they put on a show for me, I don't know. But when I saw it like that, it made me start thinking, well, if, if, if I've seen a different story in terms of the way the stadiums are being built, or the one, I mean, I only went to one site, don't get me wrong. How many more things may be different that I'm being given in the media? I think it's... Um, I was thinking more of the, the corruption from FIFA Getting, getting selected. selected it, yeah. And that's a different story. I mean, if you're talking about that <coughs> side of it, at the moment it doesn't look good. I think, um, I think when a, when a, I mean, pr presidents and prime ministers don't stay in power that long, um, as Sepp Blatter has done, head of a, a union, the way he has, I don't, I think it's unheard of. And so automatically you start thinking negatively how and why is he still in that position. Um, the World Cup going to Qatar, yeah, listen, at the time of the year, the heat and stuff, but I think they're doing, doing things to, to accommodate that. Whether it'll, it'll work or not it remains to be seen. But yeah, the, the in terms of thinking about is there, is there been any underhand goings on within FIFA? At the moment, because we've not been told anything, but if you're looking at it just from the outside, I'd find it hard not to think that there is something untoward that's gone on in, uh, in, in if not recent, but many years. Uh, the question in the third row. <coughs> Haria, thanks Hi. for coming. Um, if you could, with things like diving, etc., going on in the game, if as an ex-pro, if you diving. could diving, etc., like Tom Daly, <laughs> but on the pitch, um, if you could, as an ex-pro, if you could change two or three laws to make it a better game, what would you do? Uh, I'd have Simbins. I won't mind a simbin. I think it's exciting. I think it adds to it. Are you playing with? And it, and it will stop people from mouthing off and being disrespectful to the to the referees. Uh, rugby do it very well. I wouldn't bring in uh, technology like goal line technology. I think that adds to the to the madness of the game. It adds to the the, the chat after on radios, on TV, and magazine. Um, I think if it becomes too clinical like that, I don't like it. Uh, this isn't a stop-start sport. This is a continuous sport. 
that you like to keep ticking over. Um, so them two are two that I'd look at. Um, the question from gentleman in the blue jumper. How did David De Gea cope with the pressure that was like placed on him when he like when he joined first joined Man United and all the mistakes that you made uh, in his first couple of seasons? Um, my pep talks probably. Um, <laughs> no, not really. I'm joking. Um, no, he was. Um, listen, when he first came in, he was a young. For any, any player, but a goalkeeper, when you're that age, it's very, very young. Goalkeepers tend to hit their best form mid to late 20s and then get better even with age then. He came in as like a 19, 20-year-old and to come into, into the sticks at Manchester United, especially after someone like Edwin <coughs> van der Sar has been there, is a huge, huge, huge thing to try and do. And I think he was physically, he wasn't ready at the time. He probably he had to build himself up. He went through a process of doing a lot of gym, eating the right things. And just mentally, he, he had to really, really toughen up, and he did. Um, it's a different game. Listen, you come from Spain, where they don't really cross the ball in the air. Everything's on the floor. <coughs> Here he's having to fight off people like Kevin Davis and people like that, big monsters. So it's a different, different type of football altogether. Not only that, from a different culture. So there were so many things that were kind of against him, but he, the manager st stuck with him. I think credit to Sir Alex Ferguson in sticking with him. And now for me, I think he's the best keeper on the planet. Hi Rio. Um, Hi. During your career, how did you deal with being injured? Oh, you got crutches, I can see. Yeah, you got crutches there. Yeah. Um, well, for probably four or five years, I had a niggling back injury, which was <coughs> my, my week would run like we'd play Saturday, and uh, I'd get out of my car on the way home, and I'd walk. I'd have to get out, and I'd walk in like this. No lie, I swear. I'd walk in like this and then I'd get home, I'd just lay down straight away. Then all week I'd have to go into training like this and I'd, I'd gradually get up as Wednesday, Thursday comes, I'm up and then I might train Thursday, play, train Saturday, Friday and then play again Saturday. And that was all assisted by working on me physically with the physios and the sports scientists and taking lots of tablets to and inflams, etc. It was like a walking chemist. Um, for a period of time. Um, that's hard in itself, but the mental side of it, I mean, Jamie, part of my management, management team there, he was with me along the way. I'd say that was, in terms of football, one of the most difficult periods of my sporting life, being able to deal with that mentally. So you go through so many different emotions. So I'm, I've gone from playing every week, week in, week out, to even in a warm-up, I don't know if I'm gonna f make it for a warm-up, let alone the match, stoke away. Five minutes into the warm-up, my back goes, I have to walk in. Now, dealing with that embarrassment, letting your teammates down in the change room, they come in after the warm-up, Reed, what's wrong? You're not playing, my back's gone. And you're looking in these eyes and you're thinking, I would have been thinking, your back's gone, you're winding me up, come on, get out, we're playing, you've got a big game. Like, that's the way I used to think about certain players. If it wasn't a break or it wasn't like a cruciate, I used to think, you can get along with it, come on, take a tablet, we'll get out there. So you've got to deal with that, thinking what people are thinking about you. I was having to go in a changing room because I weren't training all week. I used to want the team to go out to train, then come in, so I've not got to see no one, walk in, do my work and try and get out before they finish because I was embarrassed. My pride was dented. I weren't being able to go out and play in front of the crowds as often as I'd wanted to. And then when I was out on the pitch, I wasn't being able to play it to my full capabilities because I was being held back by an injury.
So you've got all them things flying around and that's about soul searching and finding a way. First, the root of problems with your injury, which I managed to get to, and then managing your injury, managing yourself, and then building your self-esteem back up again to go out there and play. It's not easy, but you've got to remain positive at all times if you can. It's difficult, there's dark days. There's days he'll tell you when I was sitting there going, I don't know if I can come back. No one knew this. People think you're indestructible as a sportsman or as a, as a player. People think that your emotions don't take a batter and you just deal with it, you just go, so he's on 100 grand a week, you can deal with this. You have to deal with it, you're 100 grand a week. I wouldn't mind being injured on 100 grand a week, but I want to play football. I want to win more trophies. I want to be recognised as the best. So to do that, I need to be fit. So then you end up putting pressure on yourself. So it's like, it's like it's just, it just keeps going round and round. And until you get an idea of managing all them things together, then you can actually start making steps forward to get out there and perform again at the highest level. We'll go for one final question, but Rio will be joining us in the bar afterwards, so do come and continue the conversation in there. <laughs> um, can we go to the question in the aisle on the third row? Hi. Um, Hi did you have any sort of pre-match routines or superstitions or any songs that you listen to? We could be here for a long time. (laughs) Um, I was so superstitious because I was so scared of not winning. Um, Like my, I'll just give you an idea of my day, a match day. So I would, so the night before, I would do my mental. I'd think about who. So for instance, I'm playing against Thierry Henry. What's he good at? So before my head hits the pillow for a minute or so, I'd be going, What's he good at? He's right-footed. Likes to go on the left-hand side. Doesn't really like me when I get physical with him tries to stay over that side away from me. The first tackle, the first challenge we have, the first run into the channel, the first turn that we do, I was going through all of that, playing it out in my mind for the next day. Wake up in the morning, go through that for 30 seconds again, just brisk through it. Then I'd wake up, at, I'd, so I'd wake up at about quarter to eight, go down for breakfast, have porridge with some currants on it, um, <laughs> um, jam on toast, and sometimes I'd have an omelette and a yogurt and a banana. <laughs> and then I'd go back to bed, have a sleep, wake up at about quarter to 12, go down for the, for the pre-match, meal, uh, pre-match uh, video of the opposing team, do that, watch the game, watch all the, d- the detail, go into lunch <coughs> and your pre-match meal. And I'd have pasta with chicken breast and broccoli, lemon on it with Parmesan cheese, a yogurt with honey in it, a banana, a coffee, all of us. So I'd order a coffee and the whole table would go, yep, yep, arms up like, boom, 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 like dominoes. Uh, we'd all have a coffee, one sugar, and then we'd leave. And I'd, during that time, I'd have a couple of litres of water that I'd have to get through before the game. Then I'd get to the game and then I'd go and get my left foot strapped, my left ankle strapped. Didn't need it strapping, but I had to. <laughs> um, then Music was a big thing. So in the mornings in my, in my room, I'd have my iPod and I'd have my speakers and I'd be playing tunes that I'd have set up from the, from the, during the week. I'd have certain songs that I'd put on. Um, bit of hip hop, bit of old house and garage, bit of old reggae, um, bit of rock. Um, and then I'd go to the ground to get the strapping, obviously, like I said, sorry. Then me and Scolzi would always play two touch. So like, I'd be here. In the change room, like bearing in mind, some of these change rooms are really small, but me and Scolzi had to find an area, and I'd go here, and he's where you are, and so I'd start, bang, two touches, he'd play it back, two touches, and then by the end of it, he's like smashing the ball into me, and we're flying about the change room, 
getting a sweat on and everyone's going come and you've got people in there bearing in mind who are sitting there trying to get ready for a game like in quiet in silence and in their own zone and there's balls flying past their head and stuff like that so Scolzi beat me once I think in, in about eight years um, <laughs> no no he didn't he was good but um, so we'd, we'd do that and then I would always have to go out if I wasn't the captain I'd, al- I'd obviously go out first if I wasn't the captain I'd always have to go out sec- uh, behind the goalkeeper third like no one could go in that position. Like it wasn't happening. If people tried to stand there and I'd either have the straight arm, get back. And then as I leave the change room, I'd have to sprinkle my head with water. And then I'd get out of the change room. Before I got to the white line, I'd smash the bottle of water over my head and then I'd have to jump as I go over the white line. And then I'd have to run to the corner. I swear to you, it's unbelievable. <laughs> 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 no, I'd have to you keep, keep with it. And then I'd have to run to the corner if anyone who went to Old Trafford for any amount of time would know that I ran to that corner where we were going to be facing the other way where my goalkeeper would be, I'd go to the opposite corner, fiddle with my shorts, spin round and do a little, little like sharp, <laughs> sharp movement like that just to know I'm on the game. And then, then I was in, then I was in match mode, like you couldn't, you couldn't talk to me, like, it's unbelievable. And so I used to be in a tunnel and my mates obviously played with England and stuff like that. And they'd be coming up, everyone shaking hands in the tunnel. I used to hate it. I used to think, why are you sh-? like, PK, we played against Arsenal or something, and he was shaking hands with Fabregas, hugging, kissing the lot. And after, I was going, what are you doing? Like, we're playing against Arsenal. What are you doing? Like, shaking hands, cuddling, like, friendly with these guys. We've got to go out there and play against. I don't know. Or you'd say, like, oh, look at him with his mates. So you make him feel bad. So you, uh, I didn't like seeing people like that. You know, Fletcher and other people shouting at people, saying, what are you doing talking to him? But I'd be in a tunnel and I'd have, like, I remember Jermaine Defoe and other people come up to me saying, yes, Rhea, how are you doing? Got trying to shake hands and I'm just standing like that. <laughs> and then I remember coming out, he come up to me in England one time and said, Rhea, why is it when I'm, when I'm in the tunnel you're just trying to go on all serious all the time? I said, what do you want me to do? Like, cuddle you and stuff? I can't do this. I've got to go out there and play and I want to kick you. <laughs> and he was like, so people do it differently. But yeah, that's my uh, rituals. Please join me in thanking Rhea Ferdinand.